on virtually every measure, study after study, all over the world, anything you can look at shows that the stereotype of aging is incorrect. It turns out that aging makes people more emotionally resilient, more emotionally stable. They're less likely to be swayed by very strong emotions. You can actually measure this in the brain. You know, you put people of different ages in fMRI machines and give them stimuli. Older people are more prone to look at the bright side and less prone to dwell on the negative. They have strong reactions to things, but the storms tend to pass more quickly. They tend to be less disruptive. It turns out that given a bad situation, like say a health shock or a financial shock, older people will react to that somewhat less. The aging process actually provides a buffer. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Over the last few weeks, I have been telling the story of where the set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation that have come to be so influential in the academy and in American public life actually came from. I started with Michel Foucault. I talked about Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak, about Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw. Now, today I want to tell you how those ideas were merged, provided a synthesis of concerns about identity. And that is why I tend to use the term identity synthesis. It's in part because I think we need a neutral term that allows us to actually name this ideology and have a dispassionate debate about it, which the more common terms like identity politics or wokeness don't quite allow. But it's in part because I really do think that this ideology consists in a synthesis of the ideas I've been telling you about. They take a main theme or two from each of the thinkers I've discussed in the last weeks. So first, it has led to a deep skepticism about objective truth that is rooted in the rejection of grand narratives proposed by postmodern thinkers like Michel Foucault. And the idea that we should disavow Western rationality, be skeptical about neutral claims to some things being more true or more just than others. The second is the use of discourse analysis for political ends, the way in which a lot of academics inspired by Edward Said's work in Orientalism has tried to adapt Foucault's concern about the power exerted by discourses to more explicitly political ends, going beyond the recognition of those discourses to a tool for political battle. If you want to fight sexism, what do you do? You deconstruct popular notions of gender, popular notions of femininity, and that can reconstitute the world in a way that should be more empowering. The third is a doubling down on identity, which is rooted in Spivak's advocacy for the idea of strategic essentialism. This is what allows a lot of contemporary activists to say, well, of course, race is a social construct, and then go on to talk about race in deeply essentialist ways as though they explained 
in an obvious way who people are, how they tick, how society works in every one of its elements and instantiations. The fourth is a proud pessimism that many contemporary scholars and activists take from the work of somebody like Derek Bell, who defended the idea that the form of racial oppression in the United States may have changed and transformed and transmuted over the last decades, but until his death in the 2000s, America was no more racially just, no less oppressive than it had been in the era of Jim Crow or even the era of chattel slavery. The fifth is a form of preference for identity-sensitive or race-sensitive, race-conscious legislation. It is the deep rejection of the hope to live up to universalist principles, to neutral rules, to actually living up to the promise of treating people equally irrespective of who they are, demanding that because these were merely a way of pulling wool over people's eyes, the only way to make any kind of progress was to reorganize the world in accordance with these identity groups, to always have super conscious who you're talking to in order to decide how you should talk to them and how you should treat them. And finally, there's the imperative of intersectionality, which doesn't just ask that we pay attention to the experiences that people have had. It is claiming in its popular understanding that if I stand at one intersection of identities and you stand at a different intersection of identities, I'm not going to understand you. I'm not going to be able to be in substantive political communication with you. And if I feel bad about the way that you've been treated, then the right thing is not to embrace a common ideal for the society we want to fight for hand in hand. It is to defer to your political judgment. Now, you may remember that I said three or so weeks ago that this intellectual story, like many stories in the history of political thought, could be described as careful what you wish for. But even though these ideas evolve and stem from the thought of Michel Foucault and others, many of them would today be quite skeptical about them. I think this is true in certain respects of Kimberly Crenshaw, who has described reading about intersectionality and saying, hey, I wonder whose intersectionality that is, and looking at the footnotes only to see herself being cited and saying, I've never written that, I've never said that, that is just not how I think about intersectionality. It is quite evident, I think, in the thought of Gayatri Spivak, who was deeply concerned about the ways in which people like Narendra Modi now make use of strategic essentialism, who, thinking of the tea wallers who sell tea in the streets of India, started to mock the lack of robust autocritical humor in many of today's, quote, university identity wallers. It was true in important ways of Edward Said, who was worried that much of 
our contemporary university life is teaching people to focus principally on our own separateness, our own ethnic identity, culture, and traditions, wrongly suggesting that members of marginalized groups were somehow unable to share in the general riches of human culture. Marginality, he argued, is not to be gloried in. It is to be brought to an end so that more and not fewer people can enjoy the benefits of what has for centuries been denied the victims of race, class, and gender. Most importantly, perhaps, I wonder what Foucault would make of our world today. Foucault had always worried about the panopticon in which people are observed and punished for not living up to the expectations society has for them, but in which even more so they self-govern, they self-discipline in anticipatory obedience of being watched, of being punished, not never knowing when they might be watched and when they might be punished. I think that when you look at some of the witch hunts of the last years, some of the ways in which people have been punished in quite irrational ways for what they've said or what they may or may not have done, Michel Foucault would not have seen the realization of his dream, but rather the realization of one of his nightmares. This concludes part one of the book. I think I have given a sense of where the ideas that came to be influential in American universities by about 2010 came from. In the next part of the book, I ask, how did these ideas go from being influential in universities, but pretty marginal to society as a whole in 2010, to being very influential in the American mainstream, in establishment institutions by about 2020. My guest today is Jonathan Rauch. John is a senior fellow in the Governance Studies programs at the Brookings Institution. He is the author of a number of important books, including The Constitution of Knowledge, which I've had him on the podcast to talk about in the past. But today I had him back on the show to talk about a rather different topic, about a slightly older book of his published seven or eight years ago, which I read recently and which I found to be really fascinating. And I thought I wanted to talk to him about, and I may as well record that conversation and share it with you. That book is called The Happiness Curve. And it is based on a lot of quite convincing academic research showing that happiness across life has a U-shape, that people become less easily satisfied after their 20s and 30s, that they often reach in the United States the nadir of the happiness at around 47, but that then life satisfaction ticks up again. This conversation is a little bit different from what I often and usually do on the podcast. It is less straightforwardly political. It is a little bit more personal in parts. But it was important to me because the book really spoke to me, really explained some things about how I myself have experienced the world in the last years. And I felt that it gave me a good amount of guidance, of orientation and understanding myself and understanding how to make the most of my life. I promise it is not a self-help book and this is not a self-help conversation, but I do think you might get something real out of listening to the conversation. Jonathan Rauch, welcome back to the podcast. I'm delighted to be with you, Yasha. So, John, you're somebody who 
you know, I'm in conversation with about politics and have been in conversation with about politics for a long time. We've had you on the podcast to talk about the constitution of knowledge and other things. And I admire you as a writer, but there's one book of yours that I always kind of ignored a little bit because it seemed to me to fall into a category of book that I was less interested in, which is, you know, thinking about happiness in a kind of somewhat personal way. And I stumbled across it again recently and I thought, you know what, I, I admire John, I should actually take a look at this book. And it turns out that I found it to be you know, deeply insightful and also personally meaningful. And that is your book on the happiness curve. So I decided, let's get John back on the podcast to talk about a slightly unusual topic here. Perhaps you can tell us, you know, how did you come to write this book and how did you come to think about the kind of shape that people's trajectories of life satisfaction and happiness tend to have over the course of their lives? Well, this is a very personal book. I will try not to embarrass you and put myself on the couch too much, but I am someone who's had an incredibly fortunate life. I mean, just incredibly fortunate. Yet around the time I turned 40, I began noticing a kind of persistent sense of disappointment and discontent. And I didn't know why. I assumed it would go away because it didn't match with the objective circumstances of my life. But it only got worse. And then it magnified because I began feeling ungrateful, which is a terrible way to feel if you know you're the luckiest person on the planet. And that compounded it. And I began to tailspin. And the result was not a depression. I didn't feel you know, a lack of affect. I had no trouble getting up in the morning and doing things. But I would hear like almost these voices in the morning, especially bad in the morning, and say, tell me I was wasting my life, that I had to change up everything, that I hadn't accomplished anything meaningful. Now, I knew that this was crazy, but I also knew it was out of control when I turned 45 years old and right around on my birthday, I won the National Magazine Award, which is the magazine industry's equivalent of the Pulitzer. And that finally gave me the sense of fulfillment and contentment that I was missing for about 10 days. And then it went right back to, I've accomplished nothing, I've got to throw it all away. This was deeply puzzling and disturbing. A little bit after that, a few years later, that began to lift as I entered my 50s, late 40s, early 50s, even though things started going wrong. My father started to die, I lost my jobs and things like that. And I stumbled across, thanks to an economist friend, this new literature on what's called the U-shaped well-being curve, what we're calling today the happiness curve. And once I looked into this a little, I realized that it applied directly to me, that it applies to millions of other people, that it turns out that our sense of satisfaction with life is age-related in ways that are independent, often, of our objective circumstances, and that just understanding that can reduce the symptoms. And that's when I realized I needed to write about this. So I want to get deeper into both what the research base for this is and what the personal experience feels like, and perhaps I'll put myself on the couch a tiny bit as well. But first of all, one of the things that you do that's really clarifying for me in the book is to distinguish between the sort of bottom of the U curve, so the moment that tends to be in your 40s when statistically you're least likely to say that you have 
life satisfaction from the long-standing cultural trope of a midlife crisis? These are not the same thing. How are they not the same thing? So first of all, to clarify, what we're talking about here is, as you just said, life satisfaction. That's very different from mood or affect. You measure mood or affect by asking people questions like, how often did you smile today? How much stress do you feel? You ask about life satisfaction by asking questions like, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 is the most fulfilling life you could have, where would you put yourself? People are very easily able to distinguish. And it turns out that over the long term, satisfaction with life is more important than mood. And when satisfaction with life begins to fall apart, you think your life isn't worth much, things get really bad. So the idea of midlife crisis has some fundamental basis in reality, which is statistically speaking, on average, your mileage will vary, of course, but on average, approximately age 47, middle and late 40s, is when life satisfaction tends to ebb to its lowest. And that can sometimes result in a crisis. That is, people sometimes make mistakes in that period of life because they don't understand that what's driving this is part of the natural aging process. It's not pathological. If you manage it, it's actually rewarding. There's a payoff. But sometimes people throw their jobs away, their marriages, they make big mistakes, and it can become a crisis. But usually it doesn't, and the problem with the crisis framing is twofold. First, it's not a crisis. It's normal, natural, and healthy if properly managed. It's part of our growing process. And second, we get this stigma, which I experienced. You know, adolescence is a little bit like this. A lot of people, not everyone, but some people have trouble in adolescence, and we don't tell teenagers, oh, you must be having your teenage crisis. You know, when are you going to get your pimples? But we do that with midlife, you know, and say, oh, you know, Yash is having his midlife crisis. When's he going to get the sports car? Come on, hardy har har. So we've developed this social story about midlife, which is deeply unhelpful at a particularly vulnerable time. Yeah, and it's sort of part of what I learned from it is that most listeners to this podcast, even if they're in that kind of age bracket, even if they relate to some of the feeling of dissatisfaction, probably think, I'm not having a midlife crisis, right? Like, I didn't leave my wife or my husband to screw the secretary and buy a sports car, so this doesn't apply to me. But that's the behavior that it elicits in some subsection of people, but most people, as you chronicle, go on to lead their lives, and they remain in the marriages, and they remain often in their jobs, and they remain productive people, and you know, they don't necessarily buy the Lamborghini, but they have this kind of sense of nagging dissatisfaction. And that's a kind of different experience. So that's why I wanted to bring that out. What is the evidence that this is a profound biological program? Some people I've spoken to about this, and I've bored a lot of people, and I think interested a lot of people by talking about this quite a bit since I've read the book, say, well, isn't that something to do with what life is like in the United States today? Or isn't this something to do with the fact that your 40s are probably the moment when you're likely to have young kids, but perhaps also have a lot of responsibility in the workplace and have, you know, parents who are starting to age? And so isn't that just something about the fact that a lot of people end up with all of these commitments in the 40s and they end up being sort of overwhelmed. So how much is this dependent on those kind of circumstances and the cultural models we have in the States and the particular life circumstances that a lot of people encounter in the 40s? And how much is it something that is likely to obtain irrespective of that? Well, this is maybe 
one of the hardest things for me to get my mind around when I ventured into this field. So we can use a formula, a simple formula. According to psychologists, a good way to think about how happy we are, how satisfied with the, our lives we are on any given time, would be happiness equals S plus C plus V. S is your emotional set point. That's mostly genetic. C is your life circumstances. Are you rich? Are you poor? Are you healthy? Are you sick? Can you find a job? And V is your volitional choices, the things that we control. And all of those things affect our state of well-being at any given time in a mix that would be impossible even in principle to disentangle. And some of those things do result in additional stress in midlife. For example, you may be taking care of elderly parents while you're also struggling with young kids. Just for example, responsibilities are at their highest. But the way that formula, it turns out, actually needs to read is you add a fourth element, and that's T, time or age. It turns out that the aging process is an independent variable of all those other things. For reasons we can discuss, super interesting, though a bit conjectural, the aging process itself makes it more and more challenging to feel satisfied with life as you get into your 30s and then on into your 40s. And then it flips around, starting in the 50s usually. And the aging process then makes it easier to feel content with your life. So it's like at first you're swimming against the current, then you're swimming with the current. And that's independent of life circumstances. Well, how do we know that? One reason is that the U-shaped happiness curve adjusts for all those other things. It's got now millions and millions of data points from something like 139 countries around the world, and it's easy with those scales to control for things like education, income, health, children, employment, and so forth. Once you control for all those things, that's when you see the curve. It's the residual, it's what's left over. It's kind of the background radiation of happiness. Another reason we know that this is something pretty fundamental, this is what really got my attention and decided me that this had to be a book, some people discovered in 2012, they looked at chimps and orangutans at four different places and discovered the same pattern. It's fun to talk about how they know that, but it turns out that researchers very closely monitor the emotional state of their primates, and there are lots of ways to do that, including objective measures like are they eating and are they dominant, and subjective measures like you fill out questionnaires on how they're doing. And it turns out it's the same pattern which leads people to think that something pretty deep and psychological and fundamental is going on here. The piece that throws people off and that threw me off is you're going to notice that undercurrent, that time element, the most when everything else in your life is stable, right? Like if you get a cancer diagnosis, of course your life satisfaction is going to take a hit or a Nobel Prize. What happened to me, and I don't know, maybe also to you, Things were going consistently great, which meant it was very easy for me to feel the effect of time, first working against me, then working for me. There's two pieces of evidence that really convinced me of the underlying thesis. And the first is that, you know, this is now a pretty developed research program in economics and other fields, and there's, you know, sophisticated statistical controls which make the U-curve more visible. Sometimes it's visible with the naked eye even before those controls, but it's precisely when you control for do you have kids and all those kind of socioeconomic circumstances, cultural circumstances, that the U-curve is 
clearest. And so it doesn't seem to be just in the United States. It doesn't seem to depend on whether you have kids. People in the 40s who don't have kids are just as likely to experience the effects of the U-curve. Men same as women, by the way. And then this evidence from primates was just fascinating to me, right? That the fact that researchers who evaluate the primates or zookeepers who evaluate the primates and some of the objective measures that they look at end up showing a similar pattern. That really does suggest that it's some kind of biological program in a way that's sort of a little hard to refute or to argue with. Donovan, to your question, yes, I think there's something similar that I was feeling and that perhaps made me finally read the book and made the book meaningful and personal to me, which is that, like you're describing your life, I've been very lucky in terms of my professional success and standing, and I have very good and great friends in the world, and I feel personally, in general, quite fulfilled. And I'm also somebody whose personal psychological set point is probably pretty high. I tend to nine days out of 10 or 19 days out of 20, wake up in a good mood and look forward to the day and find it easy to enjoy good things. And yet I have found myself feeling less easily satisfied, a bit in the moment to moment, but really in a broader sense. And perhaps it is in part a proof of the cliched and long-standing idea that often the path to success is more fun than once you enjoy certain forms of success. Um, that, uh, you know, when you strive towards something and you have certain successes, you're able to publish in certain kinds of places and you have, you know, a little bit of a public standing, that doesn't give you the same satisfaction just from the fact that it continues as it does the first times you achieve those things, right? And when you start to ask yourself deeper questions about meanings, many of which are helpful and important to ask, but it can go together with this sort of sense of malaise, the sense of I used to be able to go out in the world and I was so easily excited about things and I enjoyed everything so much and I still do in good moments but somehow it's not the same as it was and one of the parts of the book that spoke to me and that perhaps we can make sure to get on the table as well is about that expectation gap right that what starts to happen is that for much of the 20s and 30s sort of you know one year is going better than the last and because you have certain successes that you didn't have in the last year, you're also feeling more satisfied with life. You're also feeling more energized by it. And then suddenly you start to think, I'm, I'm still having a good life. I'm very far from being depressed, but somehow I'm not as naturally joyful as I was five or 10 years ago. I'm not as naturally satisfied with where I'm at in life as five or 10 years ago. So what's wrong with me? And you start to question your own narrative about yourself. I thought I was this person who had a high psychological fixed point. I thought I was this person who's pretty happy. I thought I was pretty easy-go-lucky and suddenly I no longer feel like that. Is there something wrong with me? Am I losing myself in a certain kind of way? And that's one of the reasons why I've recommended this book to friends and given it to a friend for his 40th birthday and so on because I think just to me, just knowing this objective research has actually being calming in that sense because you start to understand hey it's not that i'm losing myself it's not that i'm a weirdo it's not that some natural talent i had for life satisfaction or happiness somehow has dissipated it's i'm going through a biological program so this is such an important point there's a moral element to the midlife slump and i experienced it too which is i identified as someone who was grateful and i view gratitude for good things as a moral duty and I also viewed myself someone as basically fundamentally pretty upbeat. I had my bad days. And what you just described is exactly what happened to me, which is 
that this continued sense of dissatisfaction, you know, it was like a gray drizzle in the background by itself, but it was compounded by, oh my God, maybe I'm not who I thought I was. Maybe I'm doomed to be permanently grouchy and discontented, and maybe my gratitude will never return. Maybe this is now who I am, and I don't really like this person as much. And then it begins to take on a moral element and tailspin. So the expectations gap, which you alluded to, is part of this. I mentioned there's some really weird and fascinating discoveries that go along with this branch of science. Possibly the weirdest is that midlife malaise is very often literally about nothing. Now that's very counterintuitive because we are programmed. If we feel unhappy, we look around ourselves, what's causing that, get rid of it and change it. That's a good evolutionary instinct. But here's what seems to happen. In our 20s, we set out in life for good reasons, good evolutionary reasons, with very high expectations that if we increase our status, in life, if we get the things we want, you know, the good job, the rising career, the house, the kids, the spouse, whatever it is that we want, that that will make us feel fulfilled. That drives us forward, that kind of ambition. But of course, ambition is a trickster because it keeps moving the goalposts. And that means that our expectations keep being defeated, even though we're meeting our goals. What happens over time is, as you just said, you know, I'm 25, I just got that great job, but a year or two later, this still isn't right, I want to change things up. That's fine. I'm 25. I forgive myself. Once you're 35, 38, 40, and you've been continually disappointed, not because there's anything wrong with your life, but because you're disappointed with the happiness that that has brought you, you start feeling like, oh my God, 20 years of this, nothing will ever make me happy. I'm just on a treadmill forever. And that excites those feelings of disappointment. It's like, suppose you move to Seattle expecting sunshine most days. You know, the first couple of years there, it rains a lot. Okay, next year will be better. 15 or 20 years in Seattle, you think, oh my God, I'm in the wrong city. I hate this place. This doesn't require any setbacks in life to happen. All that needs to happen is the forecasting error of overestimating how much ambition will bring us. Part of the reason it turns around, there are a couple of reasons, but one of the big reasons is realism. Just going through this process makes us readjust our expectations about how much life satisfaction we will get from climbing the greasy pole, from that next increment of money or status or relationships. And you'd think realism would be depressing because you know those high expectations go down. In fact, it's the other way around. That realism helps us be more satisfied with what we actually can achieve. And at the same time, a parallel process is as we age, we begin to recalibrate the ambitions we feel away from social competition and achievement and toward building relationships, lasting bonds and friendships. You know, maybe it's the grandkids or the teaching, the mentoring. Um, you want to contribute, you want to give back. And it turns out that those are durable ways to increase life satisfaction. They're not elusive. They don't move the goalposts. So as we shift into that stage of life, we get a double whammy. First, we're more realistic, so the expectation gap is closed. And second, now we're focusing more on things that are less ephemeral. Third thing that happens, by the way, our brains change. They actually rewire with age in ways that make us less reactive, less volatile, less subject to depression and dissatisfaction.
so this is the point in the book where I thought I want to question you about this and push you about it. So here you are. So I feel a tension in the research between two different ways of thinking about this, right? So one is, look, this is a biological program. It is part of what it is to be human. It's true in all of these different countries. It is true in different species. It's true in chimpanzees and other primates. And so there's just nothing we can do to be in control of that. And that suggests that you just have to close the expectation gap, just become inured to the fact that for a number of years you're going to take less satisfaction in life or feel less satisfied with your life, and then hope that the upward slope sets in sooner rather than later. But then in different modes of talking about it, we fall back into ascribing these sort of particular causes to it, right? And say, well, perhaps what's going on is that often, at least for those who are relatively lucky in life, you know, by the time you're in your early 40s, I'm 41, you've accomplished some things. And you thought before you accomplished those things, that if I ever accomplished those things, they would make me deliriously happy, right? If I win the National Magazine Award, as you have, you know, that is going to really be life satisfaction. And actually, when you get there, you think, oh, you know what? I've accomplished some of what I've set out to do, but now what? What's next? Or perhaps in a different kind of way, you know, you've lost some of the freedom you had, right? This is something I think about. I mean, the things I do all day long are largely things that I've chosen and that I love doing, you know, podcasting, writing for a broad audience, running persuasion, teaching students at good universities who are really smart and thoughtful. These are all things I love, but my day is set in a way that it didn't used to be, right? My day is full of these obligations, and so it can feel when I look at my calendar, like, oh God, I know exactly what's going happening next week and the week after and the week after. And Tuesday morning, I'm in my editorial meeting, and on Thursday afternoons, I'm going to be teaching, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So which of these is it? Is it that some of these objective factors help to explain how I feel and perhaps thinking how I think about those factors or changing my life in such a way that those factors are a little bit different is going to bring some amount of relief? Or is it really just a biological program and no matter what I do, I'm going to be feeling like that? I mean, I guess it's a little bit of both, but I have trouble thinking through this as clearly as I would like. Well, you're not alone because even in principle, it's impossible to disaggregate. I mentioned the equation that... uh, life satisfaction, happiness, is a sum of your set point and your conditions and your volitional choices and time, your age. The problem is those things don't all come conveniently labeled in separate boxes. So on any given day when I was in the slump, or even right now, I'm not sure what to attribute my mood to or my sense of dissatisfaction. And in fact, humans were notoriously bad at making these attributions will often lash out in the wrong direction and fix the wrong thing. So the puzzle that we all have to work through is trying to sort out, in my case, individuals always vary, or in your case, what are the different contributions of these elements? And if I'm going to sort that out, how do I do that? Now, it turns out that although what's going on here seems to be fundamental, first, it doesn't apply to everybody because just people differ. It's an average. And second, there's all kinds of things we can do about it, as we can do about so many things in life that affect our state of mind. We can deal with it well or we can deal with it poorly, just to begin with. One thing that I encourage people to do, I did not, I think that was a mistake, is have counselors 
and friends who you can talk to about it because they can help us see our lives more objectively. They can help us understand, well, wait a minute, uh, it doesn't really sound like there's anything really that bad about your job, Yasha, or whatever it happens to be. Or maybe you want to reconsider, Jonathan, changing up your your relationships, because I don't really think that's it. I mentioned coaching is a model that I came to have a lot of respect for because coaches, it's a non-therapeutic model. It's a model based on alliance. Coaches are people who have experienced and are trained in the process of surfacing our values. A big thing that's going on in our 40s is our values are changing as we move away from what's the next thing to accomplish and toward what's that relationship I can invest in. What do I care most about? Time is getting shorter after all. Coaches are good at helping us sort through that, and it is hard to do. There is nothing wrong with changing in midlife, but it should be done in a way that is progressive. I say step, don't leap. Don't throw all the cards up into the air and move to Belize in hopes that things will get better, because likely your problems will just follow you. So talking to people, working with others, making rational changes, a very important thing people can do is what I hope my book will do which is just to normalize this process. Just telling people, you know what, there's nothing wrong with you if you're going through this. In fact, there's something right with you. That can reduce this spiraling problem that we describe, where we begin to change our self-conceptions, our identities, in ways that become toxic and self-driving. So that's very helpful. Staying present is helpful. I learned to use a kind of made-up, informal cognitive behavior therapy. When I started one of these loops in my brain that said, you know, I'm wasting my life, or I'm falling behind Yasha, who's on TV all the time and I'm not, whatever it happened to be, I trained myself to just interrupt those loops with a phrase, which is often no comparison, or another phrase I used was, I don't have to be perfect today. But just stopping those cognitive repetitions can be helpful. Avoiding isolation is so important. I let myself be isolated. I didn't even tell Michael, my husband, that I was going through this because I was so ashamed of how I was feeling. Believe me, that is the wrong answer. And then there's another whole suite of things that we can do that are not individual and they're even more important and we can talk about them. And those are the ways society needs to change in order to accommodate this reality. We cannot do this without help from the culture and society. So I do want to get to those cultural and societal changes and perhaps that makes it just a tiny bit more like a usual episode of a podcast thinking about structures of society and politics. But I want to stay with some of those personal questions for now and then we'll come back to those. One of the ways in which the equation is actually useful is in helping us think, I think, through these different kind of pulls, right? So there is one factor in the equation of life satisfaction or happiness that you know it's just determined by your age and it just means that for a certain period in your late 30s and 40s and perhaps early 50s you have this kind of undertow and so i agree with you that just learning about that and interrupting the spiral of expectations this sort of self-doubt of why am i not satisfied in the way i used to be what's wrong with me have i lost myself that i think can be very very effective but it goes together with the recognition that perhaps to some extent it's just going to be harder work to be really satisfied in your 40s than it is in your 20s or afterwards in your 60s or 70s, ironically. But that only should then make us think more about some of those other factors, right? What life choices am I making 
in order to make it easier for me to be satisfied even while I have this undertow, right? So, so if you can't change this variable in the equation, you can try and change the other variables in the equation. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that. One of the things you're talking about is the sort of transition from caring about forms of external success to other forms of satisfaction. And I think I can see how that can start to emerge at that stage of life. If you've been lucky and you've been able to accomplish some of the things that you've set out to do, you start to realize that they in, in themselves are not happiness or satisfaction uh, giving, at least not fully so. And that doesn't mean that you no longer want to pursue them. It doesn't mean that you're no longer gung-ho about them. But it means that perhaps you rebalance your portfolio a little bit towards caring about other things. And one of the things that you've sort of talked about foreshadowing the values that people tend to have later in their life is building deeper relationships. I think that's one of the things that's interesting, by the way, here we're back to a cultural model. In the States particularly, I find that you know, people have strong friendships in college, strong friendships in the early 20s. And then there's these amazing studies that many people don't have any close friends by the time in the late 30s and early 40s. I have a slightly different problem. I feel like I have many very close friends in the world or a number of very close friends in the world, but they're not around me because I'm somebody who's moved around a lot and who's not always based in one place. And I'm finding the difference between having close friends in the world, which is incredibly important and satisfying when you see them, or if you're in a moment where you have a problem or some kind of challenge, you can call them and then you can talk through it together. And that's incredibly valuable. But none of that is the same as living in a place where you have real community. And that, I think, is at least equally important. So how, when people are noticing a little bit of that unsatisfaction, dissatisfaction, what kind of choices can they make to, you know, fight against the undertow and make it a little bit easier to compensate for that natural tendency to feel less satisfied? Well, in the book, I mentioned six things, and I mentioned a few of them already, actually. The first is normalization. Understand there's nothing wrong with you. And that in itself turns out to be very helpful, uh, as I think you yourself have discovered to some extent. Well, just to say, I read this book two months ago. If we'd had this conversation before this book and said, you know, normalization is going to help, I've said, I, would it? I mean, it sounds kind of logical, but it also sounds a little airy-fairy. In my case, I have to say that so far, I feel that's made a tremendous difference, which is one reason why I've become an, an evangelist of this book. I just feel like knowing, hey, this is part of a normal program, and I've said this a couple of times now in this conversation, really is very, very helpful, in part because it allows you to sort of cut off the spiral of like, why am I not satisfied? Well, there's a simple reason, and I can do something about it. So to those who might be skeptical of this normalization point, I think I would be skeptical of it at an intellectual level if I hadn't experienced some of it, but, but I now fully buy it. Yeah, it's, of course, not a whole solution, and nothing is. And frankly, if someone could offer me a solution and make this transition go away, I would reject it. What we haven't yet talked about is the payoff at the other end of all this. This is part of the growth process. It's not the most pleasant part of the growth process, but you don't want to skip it. You want to get through it in a way that's the least disruptive. And what certainly helps with that is you may not be able to get rid of the first order phenomenon, which is what's going on in terms of your brain, your priorities, and so forth. But you can do a lot about the second and third order phenomenons, you know, the dwelling on the first order phenomenons that you have so accurately described. And that's why I wrote the book, actually. I thought this is the book that I wish I could have read when I was 38. I would have been so much better off if I had just been able to understand that there was nothing wrong with me. 
I think we talked about making transitions, yes, but doing them in a stepwise logical way, sharing with others, not being isolated, falling back on your friends, uh, staying present. This kind of midlife dissatisfaction, it's kind of a time syndrome, right? Because you're disappointed in the past and that makes you pessimistic about the future. And then those things become a spiral and work against each other. So one thing that turns out to be helpful for a lot of reasons, but this is one of them, is to stay in the present. Try not to dwell on the past, what you have and haven't accomplished or what the future might or may not bring. Try to think about today. You know, what one thing can I do today to make my life or someone else's life a little better? Sounds small, but of course there's some deep wisdom there. Interrupting those mental cycles. And I always tell people, one of the most important things you can do is just wait. It's just part of life, you know, it's not fun, but it's just helpful to know this is not the new you. This is not going to define you for the rest of your life. In fact, there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And that to me is the most surprising element of all of this research. What happens at the upswing of the U-curve, which almost nobody knows about or even believes. So you've teased the upswing of the U-curve. Let's talk about it. Part of the implicit metaphor in the U is that, you know, there's a downward slope and then you're at the bottom and then you're in the upward slope when things start to actually get better. And one of the things that's really striking in the data is that in, in most countries, including the United States, people end up being more satisfied with life, more happy in their 60s and 70s, not just compared to their 40s, but compared to their 20s and 30s. So even for the 20s and 30s tend to be a really good time, the 60s and 70s end up being even better than that, even though in many uh, straightforward and objective ways, there's a challenging decades where people's health can start to decline, where the parents will tend to die, perhaps some people in their own age cohort start to die. And yet, people tend to feel more satisfied in those decades than in the early adulthood. What's the evidence for that, for people who are skeptical of this? How do we know that this is really the case? And why on earth is that? The evidence is absolutely voluminous. I was astonished because reality in this case is so at odds with the stereotype. Our stereotype of aging is that we get depressed and dismayed and disappointed and decrepit and then we die. And that in turn reflects back to midlife and makes it harder in midlife because we assume, okay, I'm 50, I'm 45, I'm not happy now and it's only now gonna get worse from here. So then we get even more pessimistic. On virtually every measure, study after study, all over the world, anything you can look at shows that the stereotype of aging is incorrect. It turns out that aging makes people more emotionally resilient, more emotionally stable. They're less likely to be swayed by very strong emotions. You can actually measure this in the brain. You know, you put people different ages in fMRI machines and give them stimuli. Older people are more prone to look at the bright side and less prone to dwell on the negative. They have strong reactions to things, but the storms tend to pass more quickly. They tend to be less disruptive. It turns out that given a bad situation, like say a health shock or a financial shock, older people will react to that somewhat less. The aging process actually provides a buffer. I found this in my interviews. I gave people a survey, just nothing scientific about it, but I wanted to understand the textures of their life. And consistently, the older people got 
the more they said they felt satisfied with their oaths. I interviewed a 93-year-old cancer patient. I didn't know it, but maybe she did. She was going to die the next year. She said she wouldn't go back. She said she had reached a level of contentment that surprised her every day. This is, this is well-established. It's not even controversial in the field of gerontology, yet it's completely divorced from the cultural message we send, which is that aging is terrible. Well, sure, there are bad things about aging. There are bad things about any stage in life. But if we can battle this stereotype, that's going to backfill through the earlier years in life and make all the rest of it easier to cope with. So why does aging help with resilience and so on? What are the mechanisms for that? We don't really know, but there's a lot of intriguing science. Wisdom, it's my favorite thing to talk about. The least impactful, yet I think most interesting aspect of the book is the science of wisdom. Age does not guarantee that you'll be wise. Wisdom is rare at any age, but it does make it easier because as you age, you get more of the tools that are needed for wisdom. Those are things like self-transcendence, the ability to see yourself from the outside, understanding how to navigate complicated social situations and conflicts in ways that are not disruptive, a sense of balance in life, a sense of proportion. Wisdom is not the same as intelligence or IQ or experience or expertise or knowledge. It's its own thing. It's measurable. And we get more tools for it as we age. And that's good not only for us, it's good for all the people around us. So you've started to talk a little bit about wisdom, the ability to make wise choices and have a wise view of the world. What is it that older people do that people in their 40s tend not to do? One of the striking things in your book is talking about how people's priorities switch and change when they feel that they don't have much time, how they prioritize different kinds of human relationships and so on. What are some of the choices that people tend to make as they enter the 50s and 60s and 70s that seem to help them achieve those higher levels of life satisfaction? So the evidence is that we tend to do some pruning as we get older. In our younger years, we tend to want to accumulate a lot of social contacts. We really want to build that Rolodex. I'm dating myself with the metaphor. And we just want to gather in all of these social resources. As we get later in life, We're ready to let some of that fall away and to invest in the relationships and the individuals who really mean the most to us. And that, it turns out, is good for us. So that's one thing that happens with relationships and age. Another is that it becomes, we get more interested in giving back, other things being equal, as we get older. This seems to be something deeply wired. It has to do with what's been called the grandmother hypothesis, which you may have heard of. But it seems like maybe the reason that nature keeps humans around past the age where we can breed is because we're useful for others. We're useful to our kids and our grandkids and our communities. It's actually been shown that whales, for example, only a few species of animals keep their bodies around, don't die once they're past reproductive age, and certain types of whales are among those. And it turns out that having the elders in their pods actually increases the survival odds of everyone else in the pod. So we become more attuned to others and we find more ways to be helpful. That's good for us. It's good for them. And then there's all the brain changes, which I just alluded to. And that's stuff that you can just look at. You can just measure. You can show older people and younger people negative emotional reactions 
older people will react less strongly to negative emotional reactions than younger people. They're actually less likely to be depressed. So that's the story. In my case, it's held true. So far, I've been a textbook example of dead average on the U-curve. I'd say my bottom was about age 47, which is the statistical bottom. My 50s were a steady, gradual, but steady improvement. My 60s have been the best decade yet. I'm 63. It's just so much easier to feel good about life. I don't even know why at some level. It just is. So this is going to be my next question, John, and I'm happy to hear you say this, the hardcover edition of The Happiness Curve has come out at this point, uh, what, between five and 10 years ago? Yeah, and the book is mostly about research and stories of other people who you've encountered and your research for this book. It's not primarily a book about yourself, but there's elements of memoir in the same way in which you've brought them in in the conversation today. So one of the questions, as your friend with us, naturally asking myself is, you know, there was this upward trajectory at the end of your journey at the time of writing the book, and has that upward trajectory continued to obtain and has that changed your views in any way or has it just confirmed the views because in fact you are following the trajectory of the u-curve how has your experience been in the years since you published this book and are there any points in which your thinking has changed so maybe the most helpful thing would be to be concrete a little bit about what i experienced today that's different when i was I'm guessing you're, what, earlier, mid-40s? I'm not sure, actually. How? What's the age gap between us? I'm 63. Oh, so I'm 41. So, yeah, you're headed toward, statistically, the low point, and I'm headed out of it. So it'll be interesting to see if these things apply to you. One thing is the change in the nature of my ambition. It has become a lot easier for me to accept that I do what I do and I do it pretty well, but I will never be George Orwell, for example. And I will never be Mark Twain, for example, that the literary ambitions that I had when I was younger to write great, beautiful prose, that won't happen. And my younger self would have said that dropping those ambitions was kind of disappointing and sad, right? But I don't experience it that way. I experience it almost like dropping a heavy backpack and setting it down. It's easier for me now just to look at what I do and say, oh, okay, I do that pretty well. There's certainly been things that in the objective world that disappoint me. It annoys me that I have never been on the New York Times bestseller list. And a lot of people have for books that I think are not as good. And one week is all it takes but I haven't made it. That rubbed me kind of raw in my 40s. Now I've kind of come to accept that my influence will be measured in a different way. It won't be that I'll sell books, it'll be that I'll sell ideas, and that's pretty darn good. So in all of those ways, it just feels easier to both accept and savor the life I have than it used to be. And it's not because my life is so much better. My life has always been good. It's just because some of this drive to compete, to achieve, to always be better, to be the person I thought I would be, that's just kind of melted away. Not entirely. I'm still not unambitious. I'm working on an ambitious book right now. But at some level, is it the end of the world? 
my father put it to me, actually. I've, I've always remembered this. He was someone who had rages. He was emotionally abusive in his 30s and 40s. And he had a lot of stresses and a bad divorce and all kinds of reasons for that. But that faded away as he got older. and We became very close. And I once asked him what had changed. And he, he said, I stopped having $5 reactions to five-cent provocations. Yeah, that's a powerful sentiment. On the ambition point, do you think that's changed the nature of the work you do? Or has it simply changed sort of how you think about your work. You have a book that we've had you on the podcast to discuss the constitution of knowledge, I think is both a deeply insightful and a very ambitious book. And it's not clear to me in any way that it's less ambitious than books that you wrote earlier in your career. So to me, it doesn't feel like you sort of thought, oh, you know what, I used to write these ambitious books and now let me just settle for something smaller. It seems to be more about how you think about your work or you know, perhaps in the past, you would have been disappointed with its reception because even though it was widely talked about and there was favorable reviews and influence for thinking of a lot of people I know, you know, it never was a sort of big bestseller. So perhaps in the past it would have just been, oh, yeah, that didn't pan out. That was a disappointment. And now you think, no, it, it, it accomplished something important. So is it that you think that you've changed the ambit of your vision and what you want to be doing, what you are doing day to day? Or is it more a change in how you're thinking about what you're doing? Some of both. Boy, what an interesting question. No one's ever put it quite that way. It's some of both. In a way, it's more like tuning my ambitions to be closer to what I know that I do well. That has the upside that it allows me to function at a pretty high level at the things that I know how to do. It has what may be a downside in that it's it's harder now than in my 30s to get out of a groove and do something completely different. And also, I'm less interested in getting out of my groove and doing something completely different. So I don't know if that's a, a plus or a minus. My first you know, serious book, real book, was called Kindly Inquisitors. And I published it when I was 33. And it's a wildly ambitious book that almost didn't get published at all. I threw it in the trash twice. It kept dying. It's insanely ambitious. And when I look at it now, it has the passion and the prose of a very young writer who thinks he's going to set the world on fire. And I don't write that way anymore. I couldn't. And there is a part of me that misses some of that, that sense of being on a quest and never being fully satisfied. That said, we talked about the payoff. There also is some payoff to knowing what you do, being good at it, having a sense of confidence in it. And then finally, I guess I would say that I make a conscious effort to stretch. I do think I fantasize way more than I used to now about retiring, and maybe I will at some point. You know, it would just be nice to have more time to just read books and not have deadlines. So there's that. But I went off and spent eight months, you know, not continuously, but, but eight months of hard work reporting a piece for Atlantic on the revolution in nuclear power. And the reason I did that was I thought it was important and I knew nothing about it. And so every so often I make a conscious effort to try to shake myself out of my, my mold a little bit. So it's kind of a mix of things. Is that any kind of answer? No, I think it is. And it's a helpful answer that I, I think I'll come back on when I try and figure out what the ambit of my own ambition should be. I promised you and I promised listeners of a podcast that we'd have a bit more of a classic ending to the podcast talking about, you know, 
what is the takeaway for people who are interested in public policy and, and our cultural and social life who may not be experiencing this or who may want to have a kind of more objective payoff from this conversation. So what do you think we should change in our culture, in the way we think about midlife, in the way we think about happiness and life satisfaction? What kind of implications should this have beyond the realm of how each of us should think about our own lives and, and, and how we lead it? Well, how we think about it is a key phrase. There's a couple dimensions to this. This is you know, where I really become evangelical because I think the most important takeaway of my book and this work is that it should not and cannot be up to individuals to get through this phenomenon, midlife malaise, on their own. You wouldn't ask a teenager to do this, get through you know, adolescence and the changes it brings, the reorientations, without tons of social supports. You know, things like ceremonies and rituals uh, that mark the way and guidance from people like counselors and parents and structures like clubs and activities and churches and the many things that guide us. Yet we leave people on their own to flail their way through midlife with virtually no help and a social narrative that's completely backwards. The social narrative is this is the peak of your life. You're the master of your family. Your competence, your physical capacity are at their highest levels. If you're not happy now, you never will be, and it's your fault. Everything about that sentence is incorrect, and all of it is unhelpful. So we need a social retuning. Start with ageism, the general assumption that old people are decrepit, that they are not creative, that they are not entrepreneurial, that they are slow learners. None of that is true. Once again, the evidence on this is, is very clear. There are actually a larger proportion of entrepreneurial people in their 50s and in their 20s, last time I checked, according to studies by the Kaufman Institute. It turns out that although old people are not always as adaptable as younger people, when you put them with younger people in groups, they make those younger people more productive. And they learn a ton, they have wisdom. So the devaluing of age as a phenomenon of decline and decay is not only wrong, but very harmful. And age discrimination is one of the most pervasive in the world and still has not been addressed in America. So that's something that needs to change. We need to change the structure of the workplace and retirement. Retirement is, as you know, is still built roughly on the New Deal model in which people drop dead more or less at age 65, but people are now living into their 80s. It's going to continue to increase. We as a species, especially in the rich world, are getting what I will say without fear of contradiction is the greatest single gift in the entire history of humanity, bar none. And that's depending how you count, anywhere from five to 15 additional healthy years in the most pro-social, happy time of life, which is late adulthood. What to our grandparents was old age in their 60s getting ready to drop dead is the time now when we can launch new careers, find ways to help, mentor, coach, withdraw from those hard, greasy pole jobs where we're supporting our kids and reinvest in our communities, give back. And we can do that now until well into our 80s in many cases. Why are we not harnessing that talent? It is good for those individuals. It is good for society. Throwing all of that away by saying, well, when you're 65, you retire, you fall off a cliff, the workplace has very little use for you, is a terrible policy. We need to change the educational structure so that it's easier to go back to school, for example, in midlife when people are getting ready to think through their new values, their retooling. We should have gap years 
as a routine matter for people in their 40s and 50s. We should allow taking a year or two out of Social Security to go back to school and learn something new for the next stage in your life. We need to destigmatize counseling. We need workplaces that are, instead of just, again, throwing away older talent, have more gradual off-ramps that shift people into jobs where they can do more work with others. So all of these things I'm describing are ways to change the social context and the social narrative so that instead of having society be at war with the aging process, it's in tune with the aging process. And then that backflows in turn toward the individual having a more successful and easy transition because society is now supporting it. Jonathan Rauch, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.